This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for February 16th, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Our guest this week is the chair of the American Conservative Union, Matt Schlapp. Commonly known as CPAC, it is the oldest conservative lobbying organization in the country. Its first meeting took place back in 1974, Ronald Reagan among its earliest speakers. Later this month, CPAC will host its annual conference just outside of Washington, D.C. With a Republican in the White House, we talked about President Trump, the history of CPAC, and the 2018 midterm elections. Matt Schlapp, as the chairman of CPAC, take us back to the early and mid-1970s. Why was it formed? Well, first, the American Conservative Union was formed because Barry Goldwater, a conservative, was nominated and ran for president in 1964, but he was trounced throughout the country. And conservatives across the country, libertarians, social conservatives, said we better work together more effectively in order to actually win one of these presidential elections. CPAC was part of a a move to make sure that all these conservatives that were working around the country had a place to come together and bolster each other and figure out a way to plot and to plan and to work together. And interestingly enough, that was right at the time when Ronald Reagan was really becoming a national figure, and he launched his national political career at CPAC. He was, at the time, the governor of California, went on to challenge Gerald Ford in 1976, elected president in 1980. But why was it so pivotal for him to have this organization, and why did he use that as a springboard to his campaigns in 76 and then again in 1980? Because Reagan coincided with this new coalition. So Barry Goldwater loses. Conservatives are trying to figure out how to work with each other. And Ronald Reagan, with charm and grace uh, and a lot of careful thought, stitched together social conservatives, people who believed in a strong national defense and fighting communism, and those who believed that the Great Society had been a failure, the New Deal, had turned into the Great Society and become just a bloated bureaucracy where people weren't really actually being helped. And taxes, obviously, with the California experience, were too high as well. So he was able to stitch together that coalition for the first time. Obviously, the Republican Party went on to great success under Ronald Reagan. And the Republican Party is still trying to figure out from that day forward, how do they keep this coalition growing? How do they keep it modern? And how do they use it to be successful in the future? Your first CPAC conference was in 1974. And, of course, that was a tumultuous year year in American politics with the Watergate scandal, right. the resignation of Richard Nixon, and the ascension of Gerald Ford, the only appointed vice president, to become president. Did that play out in the early years of CPAC? Yeah. Now, of course, this is a little hard for me because I'm the first chairman to be born after the organization was established. I might not look young, but I might be younger than some people think. And yeah, you're right. It was a, it was a tumultuous time. And it's important to remember, as we talk about outsiders in politics, the conservative movement 
ACU and CPEC, they were the ultimate outsiders. They were fighting the quote-unquote establishment, the establishment Republicans of Nelson Rockefeller, of Jerry Ford, of people, a lot of folks. The party was dominated by these New England states and you know the, the eastern seaboard. Uh, and, uh, and it was interesting, the West, including California, was the base of this new conservative movement. So it was a tumultuous time, and ACU had a tradition right from the very beginning and at its conference at CPAC, of taking those leaders on. So did it change, you think, the makeup of the Republican Party? I think uh, the ACU and CPAC has had a big impact on changing the Republican Party. You know, those who come together at CPAC, Steve, they're not all Republicans. Uh, some of them have an alignment with the Republican Party. They probably mostly vote Republican. They've probably always voted Republican for president. But it, it's nothing, it's no slam dunk for the Republican Party with all these activists. Uh, they have to earn it and they have to work for it. And um, what I believe has happened over time is that Americans generally, left and right, are less tied to party and more tied to philosophy. And that's why I think more than ever, the uh, CPAC conference and ACU generally and the other great conservative groups, they're the ones who are really driving politics. I think that's also true on the left. I think the donkey is less important. But it is these movements on issues that animate the left that are more important. Another Ronald Reagan question, because he appeared at the CPAC conference every year during his eight years as president. And 13, he came 13 times, launched his national political career. And you're right, like Donald Trump, came to CPAC starting in his first year in the presidency and every year since. One year he had to skip because of the New Hampshire primary and, and, and gave them a tape, but 13 times. And I read that the first conference, a couple hundred people. And yeah. now it's grown to a few thousand. I was in the Fox Green Room the other day, and a gentleman came up to me and said, hey, I was one of the organizers of the first CPAC. And I said, how many people were there, 500? And he said, yeah. I was like, okay, 250? He was like, yeah. I was like, about 150? He goes, probably more like 150. And they had it in a hotel room, ballroom. And it was the beginning. You got you to start a journey with a step. How has it changed over the years? Uh, I'd say specifically in the last three years since I've been the chairman, been lucky enough to be the chairman and put together uh, a, a really new and excellent team, um, what we've tried to do more than anything else is not just talk, but every time we talk about a subject, tie it right to some action that needs to be taken, that an activist can take. We also try to always attach it to the history. Why do conservatives believe this is the right policy outcome? Uh, it's because we're, uh, we're all infused by what the country has been through and what the world has been through. We're constantly trying to stitch through uh, different types of conservatives and libertarians and free market people and trying to figure out what we are unified on, but we also spend a lot of time on what we disagree on. It is a big mistake in your personal life, in your family life, and in politics to gloss over the differences. You actually want to talk about the differences. When you talk about the differences openly, including with all those television cameras that are at CPAC, and remember, this is one of the top three political events for media coverage of the calendar year. When we talk about those differences, and everyone sees us doing that in an adult way, I think we bring more people to our movement. Well, let me follow up on that point, Matt Schlapp, because, as you know, Reagan famously said that the differences need to be bold, not in pastels. But as we look at the House and the Senate, and people say, we need compromise, we need bipartisanship, do, do these differences make it more difficult to have that comedy, that compromise in Congress? I actually think there's a lot of things that the right and left can agree on. I think the right and left can look at some of our institutions and see failure. Um, I think the right and left can look at sometimes even our own political parties and see failure. I mean, if you're a Democrat out there in the country, it has to bother you. You know, if you were a Bernie Sanders supporter, that Hillary Clinton seemed to get a leg up, which seems unfair. So I actually think left and right can come together. 
at times, not on everything and not on most things. I think for bipartisanship between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, I do think that is awfully hard. Why are we so polarized? Um, you know that that's a that that is a very deep question. We could spend a lot of time on. I'm not sure I have the answers, but it must have something to do with the fact that the wrong track numbers in America have been so durably high for a very long period of time. The American people see systemic problems with their country, um, and it's causing them to kind of go back to their corner of their beliefs. And I think the left is doing that, and the right is doing that. I think there's a further distrust of each each side has a growing distrust with the other. And um, not all that is bad, but some of that is bad. And I think we need more forums like CPAC. We need more forums on the left. We need more ways in which Americans can see that uh, people can explain what they view, what they think, and also talk to people on the opposition, in the opposition, without screaming at them, without yelling at them, without calling them a racist or a hater or a deplorable, whatever the term, uh, the the term of that. That's why C-SPAN is so important. They've got to be able to see that because if we can't talk about our differences constructively, we're not going to have bipartisan agreement on the floor of the Senate. On some issues, as you look back, whether it's Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill or Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton or Barry Goldwater and Hubert Humphrey, they could come together on some issues. Right. What are lessons from the past that we could apply today? Okay, so uh, one of the lessons was uh, politics is all about a human uh, uh, relationship, right? It's all about the human condition. And sometimes those senators would go get lunch together or go have a couple of bourbon and branches together. Sometimes their families went to the same school and congressmen and senators lived inside the swamp. They didn't all go home on jets every weekend. Um, so that's made a big impact. You know, there's almost like a uh, there's a bit of an indictment for any politician from one party to be too close to a member of the other party, which I think is a big mistake. So the culture of how, you know, uh, members of Congress operate in D.C. has changed a lot. I do think some media coverage has really uh, charged up the political environment, unfortunately. But I, like I said before, I think a country goes through periods of time what we're realizing in our country now is a general dissatisfaction by a large swath of Americans with the trajectory the government's on. Big global trade agreements, giving American sovereignty away, a big blow to bureaucracy that's unaccountable to the taxpayers and not uh, giving the kind of services they want to see. It's, it doesn't mean that everybody's anti-government, and it doesn't mean that everyone agrees with my view of government. It just means that they're really systematically dissatisfied with where things are. If you, the examples that you used are questions of civil rights, a question will come out of nowhere or be building for a long period of time. It gives the parties to kind of reset on the questions of civil rights. As you know, the Democratic Party was opposed to these measures, and the Republican Party was mostly for them. And that changed politics. And I think we're going to see those kinds of changes on issues. We're seeing it on prison reform. We're seeing it on criminal justice reform. We're seeing it on the idea that the government so casually spied on citizens. I believe that the Obama administration inappropriately just casually spied on citizens. I think we're going to find out throughout this process that uh, this, the, the, the steps and the barriers and the safeguards we thought were in law were not followed. And I think that gives a real opportunity for people that care about the Bill of Rights, the Constitution on the left. That's their tradition. So the American Civil Liberties Union, all those organizations, to work with organizations like the ACU on the right to make sure we have those safeguards. People in this country were given individual rights through the Bill of Rights, and I'm for all of that. We should acknowledge that your mother is in our C-SPAN Radio right. studios here in Washington, D.C., and we welcome her. You're one of four, two boys, two girls. That's right. Why are you a conservative? That's a great question. And I'm not, I didn't come from a household where politics was talked about all the time. 
Um, and I wouldn't even call my parents particularly very political. Um, uh, my mom was a, a Kennedy Democrat uh, and a Democrat for a long period of time. Um, uh, you know, the first person she probably voted for who was a Republican for president was probably George H.W. Bush. Uh, I'm looking at her head to see if she corrects me. So, and she represents a she lot. She said of, yes. She represents a lot of people. She's a go-to-church Catholic, and um, eventually the Democratic Party left her. She felt like her beliefs were the same, and they left her. She's somebody who comes from a family that obviously had an immigrant tradition. She comes from a family of people that believed that the family was the center of society and one of the most important institutions. And somehow in that whole process, the Democratic Party left her. By the way, Ronald Reagan says the Democratic Party left him as well. So for me, my, uh, my moment when I really realized this was when I was at the University of Notre Dame as a student. And I was always political. It's just the way I'm wired. I actually, I always say I, I watched more C-SPAN than I did baseball. And, uh, and some we people, like that. And some people say, well, that means you were probably a geek. Well, maybe I was. Uh, but uh, so for me, when I went to the University of Notre Dame, I started a student publication. I started running against the administration, which wanted their, their administration-approved publication to kind of be the only publication. And I was taking them on, and I just it, it just hit me that um, I hated the idea that the individual couldn't do what they wanted to do, certainly in the sphere of expressing their political beliefs. And I started to realize over those four years that that's where my philosophy lied. One of the driving issues this year remains immigration. Your wife is from Cuba originally. Yep. She came over to the U.S. with, uh, was born in the U.S., but her yep. family is from Cuba. Megaflop is how political described what happened in the Senate this week. Yeah. Where does this issue go? How do Democrats and Republicans come together on the so-called dreamers? Well, first of all, I'm not so sure that the Republicans and Democrats can easily come together on the question of immigration. I think we've been trying to do this for a very long period of time, and I'm not so sure this is an easy place, which is why I think the president uh, really took a courageous step, politically courageous, to try to say, hey, I will give you something that you want. Why don't you give me something that I want? I think for Democrats... Steve, their fundamental question is, are they hashtag resistance? Donald Trump is a scoundrel. We cannot work with him on anything. He's a morally corrupt individual we will have nothing to do with, which is hashtag resistance. Or is he someone who Heidi Heitkamp and Joe Manchin and Claire McCaskill, uh, is, is Joe Donnelly, is he someone that those Democrats realize they must work with, at least on some things, so that they can come back and have another term in the Senate? Uh, and if they decide to do that, that really breaks up hashtag resistance because now it's like, well, if he's someone you can do business with, it breaks up that strategy. And that's where the Democrats are. They're trying to figure out what is the best strategy going into November. I know for some of them this is a moral question. For most of them it's more of a political question. And I would say this to the White House, which is the Democrats want a DACA, a DACA fix. They want these people who are here illegally to essentially get amnesty. It is the best, it's probably the most compelling case for amnesty that we have in the whole immigration process. There's a lot of Republicans like Lindsey Graham who want it, but they're not going to get it unless they they partner it with uh, the immigration reforms the president wants. So if you really cared about the DACA folks, you would give the president the reforms he wants. This is the problem I see with Democrats on questions like minimum wage and questions like immigration. When they had 60 votes in the Senate and they had a supermajority in the House with Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama was president, did they move on immigration in those two years? They did not. 
Did they move to raise the minimum wage in those two years? They did not. They often wait until they don't have power to bring up these issues, especially issues surrounding questions of race, because they believe it puts the Republican Party on the defense. What I would suggest for everyone to do is look at the deal that the president's put on the table. If you really want DACA to be fixed, you're going to have to accept something on the other side. If not, you're going to have more deportations, and there's going to be more pain. And that's the that's the unfortunate situation we're in. You're with the American Conservative Union and CPAC. Your wife is Director of Strategic Communications at the right. White House. So you really get an insight into this Trump White House. Yes, I do. I do. And I, uh, you know, over the course of the last several years, I feel like uh, I know the president pretty well. I know the vice president pretty well. I know the people that are around uh, the table uh, and helping him to make decisions. And it's been, a, it's been a really interesting two years, and I'm not writing a book. Let's talk about the midterm elections. What's going to happen? That's a great question. I think Republicans are in a vulnerable position. They've had great success over a long period of time. They have a big majority in the House. They have a majority in the Senate, which Republicans don't have. You know, Democrats have majorities in the Senate three times more often than Republicans do. Uh, obviously, the presidential victory was one that shocked a lot of the country, uh, winning in states like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. But so, not you. You predicted it. I did predict it. That's true. I predicted it, but then I'll be honest enough to tell you I went to bed that night and then I started to wonder again. But I did. I could definitely see a path because I went around the country and talked to enough people who told me they were not Republicans, especially Uber drivers and people working, you know, in the places where the debates were and stuff. Where I got to see you on the trail, and it was just overwhelming the feedback I got. I could tell there was something going on. People felt disconnected to the normal order of politics, and uh, so um, you know, uh, my view is is that uh, uh, the Republicans have a lot to lose. Um, and they're on the defense. I disagree with the right track, wrong track figures. I think that those are skewed. And I disagree with this idea that the president's approvals have been durably, you know, around the 40% range or so. I think that is the, I think the term approval does not lend itself well to the phenomenon of Donald Trump. Some people, a third of the country loves everything about Donald Trump. But there's another swath of Americans who like a lot of things about him, don't like some things about him, but they like what he's doing. From a policy standpoint, that's the piece of the American electorate we're not capturing very well in these polls. And I think when you look at polls, I'd go beneath the approval and look at the questions that say, do you agree with what he's doing on the economy? Do you agree with what he's doing on immigration? Do you agree with what he's doing on national security? Those are the numbers that will translate uh, on Election Day. Is 2018 a referendum on Donald Trump. It's hard for it not to be because he's such a big personality. I mean, it's almost like it's almost like everything in life is a referendum on Donald Trump. You watch an NFL football game, it's a referendum on Donald Trump. So it's hard to say that out of nowhere he's going to kind of like, you know, slunk into the uh, slink into the corner and not be a big presence in the election. He is going to be. But what I would tell what I tell Republican candidates all the time is, is that the voter is going to give you a pass, though, if there are aspects of Donald Trump that you don't embrace. They're actually going to give you a pass. They don't view Donald Trump in the same way they might view their senator or their congressman, which is both good and, and bad for Donald Trump. There's a lot of good to the fact that he is such an extraordinarily uh, uh, unique presence in politics. But if you're a Republican, you're in a strange position where you actually can separate yourself from the president when you want to because nobody expects the fact that you're going to agree with Donald Trump all the time. In previous, With previous presidents, Republicans didn't get that benefit of the doubt. 
we will be covering the CPAC conference. Give our listeners a preview. What can we, what can we expect? Well, you'll, you'll hear from the president. You'll hear from the vice president. You're going to hear from major members of the cabinet. You're going to hear from uh, the key advisors around the president. You're going to hear from the conservative voices in the House and in the Senate. One of the things I'm looking forward to is a sit-down with uh, Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows on the stage. CPAC has gotten away from mostly fiery speeches and we're having more discussions, which is what you do on your show. We're sitting around the stage and we're talking through the big issues of the day. We're going to talk about everything that's controversial in society, whether it's the limits of uh, the government's uh, ability to spy on us and our enemies, whether or not it's you know this terrible tragedy which happened uh, with the shooting in Florida, which we've had way too many of in our country. And what does that what does that tell you about America? Where do we sit? Do we need to change laws? Is it not about laws? Is it about hearts? We'll talk about those issues. We're going to talk about the economy. You know, is the stock market uh, an indicator that this Trump economy is going to go gangbusters for a few more years? Or are there more troubling uh, events on the horizon? And of course, North Korea and Iran and China. Um, you know, there's some really serious issues to walk through. And when you look in the audience, do you see a new generation of conservatives? I do. This is what's great about CPAC. It's skewed young. 50% of that audience is in college or younger. My daughter's going to be there. She started a constitution club at her at her school. There's a lot of high school kids that are being drawn to CPAC. Most of the college kids who come to CPAC are, have been victims of this whole idea that there's no longer free speech. No longer free speech on college campuses. That's insane. By the way, these campuses are by and large supported by all of us, the taxpayers, and we send our kids there, and our kids, they try to radicalize them. And so these kids, they're victim of this, whether it's the liberal professor, which we all had that dinged us, gave us a lower grade than we probably deserved. They come to CPAC and they're rejuvenated by each other. Yes, they probably consume some and everything else as well, but they are rejuvenated by the experiences that they're all having around the country. And I talk to a lot of people that are a little, uh, shall we say, I don't know, mom, what's the proper term, more senior in their ages, and they'll come to CPAC and they said, I had no idea. I thought we had lost the next generation. I thought the next generation only felt the burn. They come to CPAC and they realize, you know, America's a diverse country and there's a lot of young conservatives. Matt Schlapp, thank you for stopping by our C-SPAN radio studios. Your mom is smiling, so I suspect that she approves. Thank you for bringing her by as well. Thank you, Steve. I think she's smiling because I'm going to buy her lunch next. I think that's the real reason. <laughs> we appreciate you being with us. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly. Be sure to follow C-SPAN Radio on Twitter to learn about upcoming episodes. And by the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. If you like the program, please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening.